My name is Patrick Hines. I'm the co-host of True Crime Obsessed Podcast. Welcome to episode two of Obsessed with Abducted in Plain Sight. In episode two, we're taking a hard look at the kidnapper, Robert Birchtold. We'll share clips of a truly insane plotline that was left out of the film. You'll hear Jan read an excerpt of an unpublished manuscript written by Birchtold about his affair with her mother. You'll hear from Joe Birchtold, the kidnapper's brother, and the only member of his family who was willing to speak to the filmmakers. And we'll discuss new information about the circumstances that led to Jan Broberg being kidnapped. Twice. To recap, here's what we learned about the kidnapper from the film Abducted in Plain Sight. Robert Birchtold and his family moved to Pocatello, Idaho in June of 1972. The Birchtold met the Broberg family in church, and the two families almost immediately struck up an intense and seemingly wonderful friendship. You know, between the Brobergs and the Birchtold family, there was a best friend for everyone. We had some of our best family times when we were with the Birchtold family. Birchtold was great with the kids, but had an eye for one of them in particular, and her parents took notice. He did give special attention to Jan that annoyed both Bob and I. What Jan's parents couldn't have known was that Birchtold was a pedophile with a history of thwarted attempts to abuse little girls, and Jan was his new obsession. She was a beautiful little girl. Very bright and very lively. She smiled brightly at me. And as she smiled, there were definite dimples in both cheeks. Right from the start, Birchtold began a process of grooming the Brobergs, doing whatever he could to drive wedges between the members of that tight-knit family. They knew that he had to destroy Marianne and Bob Broberg to get to Jan. And they fell right into a trap. It's like a mouse going into a trap. They never even saw it coming. Never. The sexual and romantic affair with Jan's mother came first. And then, as he told the court years later... I entered into a homosexual relationship with her father in order to to have access to Jan. Finally, in October of 1974, when he could no longer fight the urges, Birchtold kidnapped 12-year-old Jan for the first time, convincing her that they'd been sent on a mission to save the lives of members of her own family and a dying alien planet by having a baby together before her 16th birthday. He takes her to Mexico, where he marries her and lives with her for months. And when the authorities finally get him back to the United States, he's able to blackmail Jan's parents into not filing kidnapping charges by getting Jan's parents to sign false affidavits that said Jan had gone with him willingly and with their permission. All Bob said was, if we don't sign these affidavits, they're going to expose the dirty laundry between me and Birchtold. And he basically walks free. Months later, the grooming picks up again. Jan still believes that members of her family will be killed if she doesn't stay faithful to Birchtold, who by now, she says, she's fallen in love with. And then on August 10th, 1976, a basically brainwashed Jan is convinced to leave with Birchtold again. And he's appeared in my bedroom and literally opened the window and led me out of the window for the mission to continue, and that was the second abduction. Again, it would take months for Jan to be returned to her family and years for her to fully understand what had actually happened. 
28 years later, after Jan and her mom, Marianne, found the strength to tell their story in the form of a book called Stolen Innocence, Birchtold appeared in their life one last time. In an attempt to stop them from speaking publicly about the abuse Jan had suffered, stalking them to one of their speaking engagements, where Jan and her mother were being protected by a group of Bikers, you guys. Jan Broberg felt the speaker at a women's conference at Dixie College, protected today by BACA, Bikers Against Child Abuse. BACA members were outside the event when a man named Robert Birchtold is accused of driving up and making threats. The scuffle escalated and Birchtold was arrested. He was charged with three felonies and two misdemeanors. And in the end, rather than facing jail time, Robert Birchtold decided to end his life. Once again, I'm here with the film's director, Sky Borgman, to unpack all of this and to share those amazing new stories, clips left out of the film, and incredible new information that just might help us make sense of it all. Hey, Sky. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Lots to talk about. Yeah. Shall we dive in? Let's dive in. So something I've been really curious about. What level of contact did you have with the Birchtold family, like his wife Gail or any of the Birchtold kids, before you started making the movie, as you were making the movie, after the film came out? We tried really hard to get in contact with the kids, uh, with Gail, uh, and with Joe, who ended up agreeing to do an interview. And I was really thankful to Joe for agreeing to do an interview because I feel like it brought in Birchtold's voice in a way and the family's voice in a way. My brother was always a sexual pervert. He always did like little girls. I guess he had a need to fulfill as a pedophile, because he was a pedophile, and I knew that. But beyond Joe, nobody from the Birchtold family would talk to you? Yeah, nobody wanted to do an interview with us. They all turned us down if we were able to get in contact with them, and I completely understand that. I don't know if I would want to dredge this up again after so many years of sort of moving on with your life. Um, I would really have loved to talk to Gail to get a little bit more of her perspective of what had happened during that time. I'd love to talk to her now to see how the family is doing, to see how they have responded to the documentary, to see if they've even watched the documentary, to see if they've had any backlash because of the documentary. Um, I I hope they're doing okay. And as far as we know, Gail is still with us. As far as I know, yes. Yeah. yeah. What methods did you use to get in touch with them? I mean, primarily, we found them on Facebook. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. You know, social media is, is pretty incredible. You can find people on Facebook. Um, we used white pages, yellow pages. You know, we went back and, and kind of looked at, at phone numbers. And uh, but social media predominantly is, is what we use to try to track people down. So the thing I want to get to right at the top is this major plot line that was left out of the film, Abducted in Plain Sight, about Bob Birchtold. Do you want to just sort of give us an overview of this plot line and then, and then we'll play some clips and we'll talk a little bit more about it? Yes. So Bob Birchtold at one point before Jan's first kidnapping uh, went to Mexico with the intention of adopting a little girl to bring home. I remember talking to Marianne about it and and she had remembered the event quite clearly. He found a family that would like to have this little girl come to America to have a better life. And so he went down to meet the little girl. And she had talked to Gail about it. And apparently Gail had said, you know, was kind of like, I've already got all these kids. What am I going to do with another one? And so didn't really understand it. Um, but he had gone down there to adopt a, a little girl. So walking down the line, I looked at each of the little girls individually. The ones that I was interested in, I took their chin in my hand and looked at the features of their face. I stood back and looked at the features of the body. Finally, after spending almost an hour, I picked two little girls 
both of them blue-eyed, both of them fair-skinned and fair-haired, and the kind of little girl that I could love. And there had been people in the community who had written him letters of, you know, saying that he's a fine, upstanding person. So he was able to adopt one. I walked over to the little girl. We were told her name was Rosa Maria. Her olive body was a little on the plump side. Her face was slightly round. She had beautiful black eyes, black hair. She started to cry. I took her chin in my hand and looked at her and told the attorney that of all the children that I had seen, she would be my first choice. When he was bringing that little girl back to America, he was stopped at the border and the little girl was taken away from him. He didn't want to adopt her so he could love this child. He wanted to adopt her so he could molest her. Do you know where Gail, his wife, was when he was on this trip to Mexico? Well, she ended up going down to Mexico as well. I think he went down alone, and then she ended up joining him down there. But I'm not entirely certain of all of the the specific details. Do you know any more about this story? No. No, that's all that's all we know. We were able to sort of piece together the the audio journal or this recording that he had and that he went down there that he'd asked a few people in the community for kind of letters of recommendation to make his case stronger. He'd hired a lawyer, he'd gone down there and he tried to adopt this girl. That's all we know. What was the decision about why you had to leave it out of the film? How did you make that decision? We thought the scene was an amazing scene. It had been in the cuts for months, I think. And and Jim and I kept kind of moving it around. Jim's your editor. Yes, yes. So we kept trying to find the right place for it. And because of the way that we sort of go back and forth in time in the episode, every placement we had just felt like it bumped, like it was taking us to a different point in time when we were sort of progressing forward, you know, or jumping back. And so it just always didn't quite fit. And, and it was one of the last scenes that we ended up really pulling out of the cut during our our edit and it just worked so much better without it in it it just really the storyline kind of progressed at a much a much more reasonable sort of much more fluid pace coming up in scenes deleted from the film we'll hear from the experts who try to help us make sense of it all and marianne gets a warning she regrets not taking more seriously so another batch of, of interviews that you did that were left out of the film were with these experts. And one of them was Diana Concanon, who is a, a forensic psychologist. First of all, can you tell me again why the decision was made to leave the experts out of the film? And then we'll play a clip of what Diana has to say about how this trip to Mexico and this sort of thwarted kidnapping may have precipitated the first kidnapping of Jan Broberg. Yeah, so we we had interviewed the entire family and then editing. And then I thought, well, maybe we'll get some experts in here to help kind of explain why some of the decisions that were being made were being made. And so we we interviewed a couple of experts and started cutting those into the film. And it just ended up feeling like it was taking it away from the family's experience of it. And we had been in the middle of sort of, of changing an editor and getting somebody on more full time to really push towards the finish line on this. And he watched it and he said, I'd like to cut out all the experts. I'm like, great, James, let's cut out all of the experts. Wow. And let's see if we can keep it really with this family. Because that had been 
the hope from the beginning, you know, to have it be this roller coaster ride, both in your experience of it and to sort of replicate the roller coaster that this family was on. And so, so we cut them out, but I still feel like doing those interviews with them was so critical for me just in understanding what was happening because I, I was challenged constantly to sort of understand how, and why and where and all of these different approaches that the Brobergs were taking, that the Birchtolds were taking, that that the whole community was taking. And so so talking to them really helped clarify things to me. So let's play this clip from Diana Concanon about her thoughts on uh, what this thwarted adoption trip to Mexico could have meant for Jan and her family. It seems like he was extraordinarily dedicated to having his own needs met. It it does appear that at the time and right before he kidnapped Jen for the first time, that his urges were at a heightened level. And this is evidenced by his attempt to adopt a child from Mexico into his own family. It appears that the only purpose for this attempted adoption was to have a child who could gratify his needs. Certainly, if the urges were not tempered and they were still at that heightened level, it could cause him to be even more behaviorally dysregulated. It may cause him to be more impulsive, more urgent in his actions in order to get his own needs met. And it could have precipitated the kidnapping. So she's talking about an escalation. She's right. saying at this point, Birch told is at like a fever pitch. She's at a desperate place. Did you talk to the Brobergs about, did they notice any changes in his behavior before this trip to Mexico? Well, certainly, I think I think at this point too, Bob was really starting to say, this guy's been spending too much time with my family. Bob Broberg. Yes, that's one thing about it's this film. It's very tricky keeping up with it. And then I, I was in an interview once and they're like, Sky Broberg, Birch, what is your name? <laughs> Borgman That's doesn't, just, I know. <laughs> you're not helping Sky. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, so Bob Broberg was was starting to feel like he was spending too much time around the family, that he was giving Marianne too much attention, that he was spending time with his kids more than he was spending with. Like his so, own children. Yeah. Birchall would pick us up in the morning and we would get in the car and we would all shout together, it's going to be a great day. And... That's how we would start our mornings. Pretty much every day, he would come by at night and talk to my parents, and he was so engaged with the kids, too. I mean, he really was fun, and he wanted to swing us around and put a puzzle together, and, you know, I mean, he was the fun dad. So Bob Broberg was trying to kind of just put some rules into place and say maybe you know, don't come over tonight. Don't come over every night. Don't do this. And so I think that's another thing that was was helping in Birch Toll's escalated feelings that somebody was saying no to him. And that hadn't really happened before. That somebody said no to him adopting this child. Somebody was saying, no, don't come into my family. And so I think that desperation was absolutely building at this point. I think about that hero border agent who saved this young girl from what would, I can't imagine what her life would have become. I know. And that's what's so shocking and it, it just happened sort of in the blink of an eye. And all of a sudden, you know, and she didn't want to go with with this guy. And she know. was crying. And then so hopefully she got returned back to her family at this point. Oh, it's so devastating. W- one of the clips that you shared with me also that didn't make it into the film was that Marianne was given a little bit of a warning, she feels like, that a kidnapping might be imminent. So let's hear that clip and then we'll talk about that. He said, what would you ever do if I took chance and took her somewhere? And I said, why would you do that? He said, what would you do? And I said, you will never do that. 
You will never take Jan someplace and I not know where you're going with Jan. And probably that was a warning to me that, but I didn't read it that way because he laughed. He said, oh, I'm just trying to push you, see what, what you're thinking. He said, I don't want Jan, I want you. We're going to do a whole episode about the Brobergs next, episode three. You know, one of the things that Jan dealt with in the wake of the movie was people being mad at her parents for not seeing certain warning signs. Yeah. Is this an example of that? Oh, definitely. I mean, there were, there were so many warning signs that they didn't see. And and we can all say, you know, yeah, because he's laughing and because he's kind of flirting and because he's saying these things, you know, people say things all the time that they don't really mean. But I think it's I think it's a sign of a bigger a bigger problem that the Brobergs especially, but all of us have a tendency to go to denial first. Like we we kind of say, oh no, you know that guy that's following me, he's not going to do anything. Or this person who I have a, a, a funny feeling about, they're not going to betray me or something like that. Like, I don't know why it is that we go to denial first, but the Brobergs certainly did that. And so I think if anything, you know, hopefully this film is one of those wake up calls that say, you know, I'm not saying don't trust everybody, but to just be cautious, especially with your kids. And if somebody says something like that or if they're spending too much time, like it's something that that we should be listening to. Yeah. And again, I don't know the exact timeline, but like when a guy builds a wall in the basement to give her her own room and then all of a sudden is like sleeping in her bed and then all of a sudden is talking about what would you do if I kidnapped her so I could have her all to myself? You know, these are the things I think the world at large was responding to with Jan's parents. For sure. And I, I and I also think that Marianne was blind to it because she was kind of falling in love with him too. Right. And so that's a huge part of it too. And we see that. I mean, that's not just something that happened in the 70s. That's happening today in a big way. We fall in love with somebody and that person ends up molesting our children. And and so when you're feeling those things, and she even says that he liked me, I didn't think it was possible that he could be liking my 12-year-old little daughter. So I think that's also something that manipulators kind of bank on, is that they can divert this attention away from the child. And that's something that Birch told was so masterful at, was getting the attention off of Jan and onto Marianne and onto Bob and onto this going down to Mexico that Jan's kind of left over here and nobody's looking at her. And it's kind of just an open doorway for him to walk through. Yeah. You know, it makes me wonder, after seeing the movie and and watching the the world's response to it, are we being a little bit unfair to Jan's parents? You know, because Jan says, and and the Brobergs say, and it sounds so naive in the movie, but it's real, that they didn't even know the word pedophile. I never had, I never had an inkling that he had sexual designs on, on Jan. We weren't, we weren't really sure even then what a child molester was. You know, and uh, I tell you, I don't know how we could have been so gullible when there were so many red flags. But I didn't see the red flags. Is it that there just weren't stories like this to teach parents at the time to be cautious and to be aware? Or if we were parents in that time, would we just have instinctively known? It's a good question. I mean, I don't I don't know. I remember I, I showed my mom a cut of the film. I was a, a child of the 70s. And I said, would these have been red flags to you? And she's, you know, she said, yeah, absolutely. They would have been red flags to me. I wouldn't have let you go with them. But again, that's after watching a movie about a pedophile who came in, right. you know, like, yeah. like you know what's going to happen here. And I right. <laughs> also talked about it to her for a long time. She knows the story, so she knows what's going to happen. So it's really easy when you know what's going to happen to say, no, I wouldn't have let him be anywhere near you. 
I mean, times were just so different. We, you know, we played in the streets. We, I remember all of these things that they talk about going on vacations with other families and their kids all the time. I don't think I ever went alone with another kid's father right. anywhere. Like on a business trip, like, like yeah. as did happen with Janet. Yeah, yeah. Nobody ever slept in my bed. But I can remember, you know, like my my uncle may have come in and sort of put me to sleep and laid down next to me or, or done something like that and, and never a thought. So right. I don't know. I, are we being unfair in judging her parents? Possibly. I mean, I think everybody brings their own optics into this. I think that some people might be unfair. Others may not. I mean, it it depends on your own personal experience that you have coming into something. I think her parents are certainly a little bit to blame, but I think that law enforcement is is very much to blame. I think that Birch told... Yeah. is really the I mean, most to blame. Let's hold him accountable. <laughs> <laughs> like he's the one that did all this. Were giant big mistakes made? Absolutely, they were made by the Broberg family. Coming up, we talk all about the other Birch told, Gail, Bob Birch told's wife. And in Never Before Heard Tape, you'll hear from Gail herself. All right, it's time to talk about Gail, Bob Birchtold's wife. Okay, let's talk about Gail. <laughs> My first impression when I saw Birchtold and his wife, Gail, I thought of them not quite matching because she was the quiet one. But she and I became really quite close friends. I'm fascinated by Gail. I've always been fascinated by Gail. Did you ever have even a, an ounce of a conversation with her? An ounce of a conversation. You did actually speak to her on the phone. One ounce of a conversation and that's it. Um, she, I had, I called her, she picked up and I introduced myself and I said, we we're making the documentary and I, I may have gotten that much out. And she said uh, something to the effect of we're not interested in talking. Thank you very much. And hung up the phone. Wow. I can't imagine what that must feel like for this woman I know. who's almost at the end of her life I know. to think I know. that like, you know, oh, now this story is going to get out. And is out. That I keep thinking that too. You know, how does she feel? Is this story out? I'm sure people have tracked her down, reporters or whoever have tracked her down and tried to talk to her about what had happened. And yeah. I mean, look, the fact of the matter is she left him. Right. She got out of it. Yeah. And we'll get to that in a minute. Jan tells us that she left him in the middle of the second kidnapping and Jan has a really interesting take on that. One of the things that I have treasured the most that you've shared with me uh, on the stuff that didn't make it into the movie was these tapes of Gail. That we actually hear Gail's voice. Yeah. Here's a little bit of Gail Birch told. Bob has always been a very good singer, and I have enjoyed playing for him so much, although I am not an accomplished piano player. He's always been quite a handyman at carpentry work also. I remember finishing our basement in Brigham City and the fun and the planning that went into it and also the landscaping of our yard. And then as we decided we wanted to live in the country, Bob just up and sold our home right out from under us. And after it was sold, decided we had better get out and find some place to live. And he went and found a lot out in the country and we bought it and then we lived in a trailer home one bedroom trailer while we planned and started building our home and the the fun that it was doing it together planning and then having that sense of accomplishment and pride in seeing the fruits of our labor 
So it seems like he got Gail to keep an audio journal as well. I know. I think Marianne did it. Gail did it. He did it. I think this is something that he sort of encouraged people to do. It's so crazy to hear that because you can hear one of the kids in the background and it's so humanizing because you're, you know, I think it's easy, especially because we don't see them in the movie. It's easy to forget that they're real people. It's very easy to forget that they're real people. And and what strikes me about about listening to this clip right now, too, is just that they moved regularly. And she says it. She says in this clip, we loved building this house. We were so proud of the landscaping and the work that we did on the basement. And then he up and sold it out from underneath us. And why did that happen? Right. I mean, that's the thing is. And then once they were back in Pocatello, she moved down to Ogden. He moved down to Ogden. You know, so they were they were moving regularly from this dream house that they had built together so obviously there was something happening and I don't know if Gail knew exactly what was happening but I think she finally sort of after a few years they got married when she was very young I think after a few years she started going something's not right here You know, I was thinking about how Gail and the Birch Told children are sort of innocent victims in a situation where a documentary is being made about the evil doings of their father, right? Yeah. So how do you sort of weigh that as a filmmaker, telling this story about this man who did all these horrible things with the hope that some good is going to come out of, you know, the telling of the story? But there is collateral damage, right, in the form of, of Gail and the kids who didn't have anything to do with their father's actions. Yeah, it's always it's always a challenge to the family that you don't have a voice from. I mean, Joe talked to us, so we did get a perspective from him, which I was really thankful for. But, you know, when you don't talk to the family, you try to represent them in in a way that is truthful and honest, and, and that's based on any information you can sort of get. And Joe gave us some insight into who they are. Um, we did have, you know, stories from the Brobergs, and they, they always talked very complimentary towards towards Gail and to the kids. I mean, they were, these two families were as close as you can get. They did so much together during a two to three year time span. I mean, they were all friends. And I know that Jimmy and Karen were especially close. They were around the same age and Jimmy was the Birch told kid and Karen was the, the, the middle child in the Broberg family. They were best friends. And so when this family split apart, when they moved down to Ogden, they were both devastated. I mean, they would write these letters back and forth to each other, telling each other how much they missed them. And so, It tore these kids apart, too, that were best friends. So I think the big question when it comes to Gail is, did she know that her husband was a pedophile and that he was obsessed with Jan? And you asked Jan this question and Jan had a, I thought it was a really interesting answer. So let's hear what Jan had to say. Do you think that Gail had any idea of Robert Birchtold's So here's what I think. Okay, so you have to go back again to this point in time. I'm positive she probably didn't know what a pedophile was, just like my mom and dad had never heard the word. They didn't know what it meant. You might have heard of a child molester, and I do think that she knew that there was some kind of attraction that he had to young, to little girls. I do think so. They had moved around a few times before they landed in Pocatello, and she ended up divorcing him during the second kidnapping and taking her children, you know, out of the area. I just don't think she could look at it any further than probably your average person could look at somebody that was the most charismatic, kind, service-oriented, fun person who's also the breadwinner, the provider, and the father of her five children. So that's a very complicated question. Did she know? 
No. Did she have reasons to have had the thought? Yes. Is the next thought, there's no way that can be true, it's impossible, and there's no way that that could be the father of my children, and there's no way that I would know what to do without him. She also thought that. I thought that was so interesting. The idea of, you know, even if she did know, what do you do? What do you do? Because, yeah. you know, this is, what what years would this have been? Oh, uh, well, this would have been late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. I mean, and he owns a store. He's the breadwinner. She doesn't have a job. She's a- Five know, kids. Five kids. I mean, what's your response to Jan's answer to that question? Yeah, I mean, it's that to me more so than anything else, I think is really a sign of the times. You know, you look yeah. at this time and you look at how people felt in relationships, how families were how men were typically at work, you know, bringing home the money and women were at home taking care of the kids. And so I think this, look, I have certainly had friends who feel the same way. What happens if I get a divorce from this guy I don't want to be married to and I haven't wanted to be married to him for a number of years in, you know, this day and age and they're worried about what will happen. Right. So back then, you know, 50 years ago, magnify that by a million percent or something. And so I think, again, denial, I mean, at every stage of the game, denial enters into this and denial is the easier way to turn than actually accepting the reality that's in front of you. I mean, obviously she did finally end up leaving him and she was okay and better for it, I think. Coming up, Jan and her mom write and release their book. In retaliation, Birch Told writes his own, which is never published. But fear not, Jan reads us a shocking, horrifying excerpt and Jan reacts to Birch Told's suicide. So I wanted to end this episode in a similar way to how you ended the film, which is by jumping ahead several years. But first, can you give us a sense of the level of contact between Birch Told and Jan as she sort of grew into adulthood? So so there was there was still some contact over the years between Jan and Birch Told. She and her sisters all ended up at college together at BYU and and there were a couple of letters that that came and one was asking Jan to finalize a divorce from the marriage where they had been married in Mexico. And then another letter came a couple of weeks after that saying something like, you know, don't worry about it. I don't need the divorce. I've I've only had one love in my life and it was you. And and so there were a couple of letters. Um, a couple of times a phone call would ring. It was, it was very sparse. And then when the book, when Stolen Innocence was written, then I think communication got to be a lot more intense and trying to stop that book from coming out. Okay, so speaking of that, let's talk about A Season in the Sun. Can you fill the people in on what A Season in the Sun is and how it's significant to the story. Okay, so what I know, and I don't know that much, we tried really hard to find as much information as we could, but there was a book uh, or a manuscript that he wrote. I don't know how long it was. My guess is that it was like between 20 and 60 pages long. So not like a big novel, but it's called A Season in the Sun. And Birch Told wrote it about his time in Mexico with Jan and kind of about how great that time was and how much he loved Jan. And that's what I think part of these audio journals were maybe sort of getting ideas down on tape that he could write this book. So when Jan and Marianne started going out and speaking publicly and selling their book, he was pulling excerpts from that book and emailing it to them and and essentially threatening them and saying, if you put your book out, I'll put my book out. Yeah. And and we were never able to find the entire book of Season in the Sun, but the Brobergs had kept the emails with excerpts from the book and they shared those with us. 
So Jan actually offered to read for us a section of A Season in the Sun. And I gotta say, the disdain with which she reads this passage is truly amazing. So this was written by Birchtold for his book that he said he was going to publish called A Season in the Sun. And so this is just one page from the book. And might I preface this by saying this is all a lie. The car was stuffy even with the air conditioning running full blast. I pulled off the deserted road into a grove of cedars. Marianne sat close to me with her hand in my crotch. I slid her over so I could slide from under the steering wheel. With the passenger seat all the way back in a reclined position, she rolled on top of me and began taking her blouse off. The smell of overly sweet perfume and body odor filled my nostrils. I felt my stomach churn. Her blouse came off revealing an unwashed bra that accounted for the odor. She unsnapped her bra and let it fall between us. Pendulum breasts unfolded, revealing the turkey waddle growth that hung beside her right nipple. I felt the bile rise into my throat. I fought back the urge to barf all over the rolls of fat that corrugated down her sides and stomach. Think of Jan. Think of Jan, my mind screamed. This is the price you have to pay to be with your dolly. Think of the joy and thrill of having her next to you. Smell the sweetness of her hair. Remember the security you feel in her arms. Any price is worth it. Just, oh my God. Yeah. And let's remember, Jan's, what, 13 at the time he's writing this about her? Yeah, 13. I can't be certain the year he wrote this, but she was either 11, 12, 13, or 14, somewhere in there that he was writing about his love. And not only his love for a little girl, but his really sort of manipulative tactics to get to her through making out with Marianne. So Birchtold's story ends with him taking his own life rather than possibly facing jail time for three felonies and two misdemeanors he got in a situation where he was trying to keep Jan and Marianne from speaking publicly about the abuse that she had suffered. Right. So there was this really interesting moment in your interview with Jan where you asked her if she wondered if any members of the Birchtold family had watched the documentary. And she gave this answer that answered the question, but also sort of gave us her feelings on her learning that Birchtold had killed himself. Um, Uh, So let's hear what Jan had to say. Do you ever think about uh, the family having watched this film and how they would respond to it or or what they think of watching the documentary? Yeah, I do, actually. I think about it a lot. And I remember the day that the district attorney called me to let to tell me he he took a bottle of pills and some kind of alcohol and downed him with that and and died. Every emotion that I had ever felt came through my body that day. So many emotions, losing those years of my childhood, losing some of those senses that, that are so present when you're young and you have no, no uh, limitations to what you can do and the world is your oyster. And, the you know, I had all of those things because I'd had such a happy childhood and I just, I just grieved in a way that I never expected when I was told he died. And I would imagine they are the same kinds of emotions that his children would have watching the documentary. And I've wondered, is that the same kind of grief? Or did they just write it off like I made it up and they're just angry? I don't know. It's one or the other. 
it's such an interesting answer to the question, you know, because she's equating her own feelings of grief and loss when she found out that Birch Tolta died with what she's imagining they felt, those same emotions of death and grief and loss if and when they watched the documentary. Does that make sense to you? It's a strange comparison to me because, I mean, I guess I, I made a, a documentary about my father and a trip that we took and... I can't. He died in 2015 and I have not been able to watch the film since he died because it's just, I know that I'm just going to be a big ball of tears watching it. So I think it's possible that that watching something and reliving and seeing that person alive can bring back feelings of grief. Um, It's very curious to me that she put those two things together. And so that grief watching the documentary, that's not something I can quite kind of get my head around. I mean, I know it's a, a complicated state for Jan when he died because somebody died that she had loved at one point in her life. And and even though I think she'd gotten to a point where she absolutely didn't love him anymore, he was critical in sort of defining her relationships after that and in defining how she approaches love. Obsessed with Abducted in Plain Sight is a four-part podcast series that takes you behind the scenes of the smash hit documentary and shares brand new stories, interviews, and deleted scenes from the film. And you guys, all four episodes are available to binge right now. Episode three is called Jan and Her Parents. In that episode, we get real about Bob and Marianne Broberg. We ask what is their share of the blame for what happened to Jan? We hear new interview clips from both of Jan's parents about their emotional and sexual encounters with their daughter's kidnapper. And we get a new story from Jan's dad, who truly believes that Birchtold once tried to kill him. In episode four, we go behind the scenes with producer-director Sky Borgman and editor James Cood to learn how Abducted in Plain Sight developed from a scrappy independent film to a worldwide phenomenon. If you're enjoying the podcast, we would love it if you would take a second to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people find our show. You can watch Abducted in Plain Sight on Netflix, Amazon Prime, or any other streaming platform. To learn more about Sky and her production company, Top Knot Films, visit Top Knot Films. If you're looking for more great podcasts, and who isn't, you can find all the podcasts we make at ObsessedNetwork.com. 